The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to History with Jackson, the home of accessible and digestible history. I'm your host, Jackson, and in today's episode, I'm talking to historian Max Portman all about West Ham United and its historic interactions and links with its communities. Now, Max is a fantastic historian and a fantastic sports historian, so you're in for a real treat today. If you're a West Ham fan, I know you're going to love it. And if you're not a West Ham fan, it will really make you think about how your club or your club in a different sport has interacted with its communities throughout history. Now, it's a really fascinating episode. I know you're going to love it. But before we jump into that and we'll leave you with Max, do please consider heading to the History Jackson website to check out the new blog. We have historians from across the world from different backgrounds writing about their different specialisms and their research. I know you're going to love reading that and learning from that. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with the capable hands of Max. So hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. Today we are talking to historian Max Portman about his work into West Ham United and its local community. Now, Max is a good friend of mine. We've been doing some great work together in various capacities across the past year. And I'm excited to show and share Max's research with you all. So how are you doing, Max? I'm doing good, thank you, Jackson. How about yourself? I'm doing very well, thanks, mate. I'm excited to talk about, you know, even though I'm not a West Ham fan, I'm excited to talk about football and history and how they intersect because it's it's always great to talk about sport. Oh, definitely, 100%. It's, the one, it's one of those things, I think it's along with science, that can just unite us all. You know, it just it covers the global idiom of a lot of things and it's one of those things when you say to someone, oh, I'm doing a PhD on football, everyone's like, Oh, really? You know, it's one of these things that really captures the imagination from the off. So I'm very glad that, you know, I've been invited here today. Thank you for having me on. And I'm really glad that we get to talk about football, you know, outside of me and you just being friends away from the podcast world. No, I certainly agree. It does, definitely does unite us. And, and, you know, I, and one thing about West Ham that I think we're all united on is, is Ward Prowse should be called up for the England squad. But that's another conversation, another podcast. But first question I have for you that I ask all our guests here at the History Jackson podcast mm. was, what was the inspiration behind this research? Well, uh, I, I wrote, I, I'd have to say, I've always liked football. Since I was a kid, always really enjoyed football. And then when I got to university... There was a point where you have to write your undergraduate dissertation. And I thought to myself, could I write football about football? And then I thought to myself, yeah, why not? So I put the proposal forward and it took and I wrote my undergrad proposal and did it fine. And then I got to my master's and I was a bit like, could I do it again? And then one of my lecturers at the time, um, a man by the name of Professor Ross Wilson, said to me, you know, um, here's something called sports history. I'm like, sports history? This is fantastic. So naturally, it's just been a evolution, really, of kind of discovering that this this great little niche in academia of sports history and kind of running with it and evolving and developing it probably since 2016, 2017. And then kind of when we got to my PhD, we kind of realised that I wanted to do something called All of London and was then told by um, my then supervisor, Dr. Dion Georgiou, very much along the lines of, well, you can only pick one club. And as you've pointed out, there's only one club for me, and that's West Ham United. I think I think mm. it's always nice to see 
historians taking their their personal life and their their personal experiences into their research because i think it makes our research more yeah. more personable and, and more accessible which I, I always quite like but you made a great point there about sports history kind of developing recently you know how how has that field mm. developed well sports history really has its origin in the 70s so very much when social history starts appearing after the postmodern boom in the late 60s uh, football then becomes this kind of thing that people pick up on because it's the most popular sport in this country so initially you get sociologists who pick up on it like eric dunning and john murphy and patrick williams and then you kind of um then James Wolvin picks up on it in a historical sense, and he releases a book in 1975 called The People's Game. And that then kickstarts this whole thing that kind of progresses from there on. So in the beginning of the 80s, you've got a lot of people who talk about football and commerce, so the likes of Stephen Tischler and Ray Vamplou. And then that evolves in the 90s into more historical focuses on class. Uh, since the noughties, we've had um, this progression of women's football coming into it with the likes of Jean Williams and Fiona Skillen. And now we're at this great point, 50 years on really, from the beginnings of it in 1975, of having such a wide spectrum. I've seen people talk about football in the, in, in the global south, and I've seen people talk about football clubs, and I've seen people talk about football commerce. And I think, you know, there's a real appetite for it both in the academic sense and in the public sphere with the likes of um kieran mcguire who teaches up at um in liverpool who does a lot of great work on football finance and who most people listen to his podcast definitely would have heard of it's it's nice that this field is is starting nice to get its good. moment in the spotlight because it it definitely needs that time and needs that space for people to learn about football outside of you know the big names Mbappe. Uh, Ronaldo, Messi, yeah. wherever you fall on that debate, but it's it's nice to see that clubs and small clubs are getting their moment. I mean, even in front of me, uh, I've got the the brilliant book uh, by Jonathan Wilson on behind the curtain on you know Cold War football behind uh, the Iron Curtain. So it's it's nice to see these these books and these clubs getting their space. But how are football clubs communities? imagined or or tangible communities and themes of identity linked that's the million dollar question really isn't it uh well it depends on who you ask really because some people will say it's linked by class some people will say it's linked by area some people will say it's it's linked by us as people and i think the overarching thing is that it's just the cause in which we can all unite behind. And it then creates this imagined community, as it were, and becomes something tangible as a result. So you've got this idea that West Ham United is based in East London. And probably up until the 60s or 70s, you've got this heavy industry in East London where it's very much a lot of men work in either the docks or Ford in Dagenham or the heavy industry is just in the area. And then in the 70s, it just collapses. And all these people move away to the new towns of Chelmsford, Basildon, Stevenage, Hemel Hempstead. But yet, you've got this thing still in the East End that brings them all back all the time. And 
Exactly. And you're right in your head. You think, well, that's just imagined. You know, there's just, there's just this community that just goes to football on the weekend. But no, it's tangible because you've got this really great thing that brings people back, gives them that belonging that they had once upon a time when they lived in the area and reminds them of the area. What you're saying there really comes at the heart of some of those modern debates of of support your local mm. because you have those communities where yeah. it's very much a kind of, one of those academic things kind of brought into the public sphere of why do you support certain yeah. clubs and why are you part of these communities? But I want to ask on that on that particular theme, yeah. you know, what is West Ham United then? And you know, what does it what does it stand for? This is a great question because it's a real topic of debate, not just amongst other people in the area, but amongst us as supporters ourselves. And I'm sure for those who follow football, they've heard of the mythologized West Ham way. So some people believe it's good football, played well and tried with effort. That's what some people believe West Ham United is in the West Ham way. Other people, you know, if you're talking about the West Ham way, as it were, or this idea of what West Ham United stands for, it's just a club who just want to give back to people, really, as best as they can. And there's this great thing in Charles Call's book, who wrote a book in the 80s, great read for anybody of any any, any football sports, sports, any club, just, just read it because it's a great understanding of the football club as an institution as well as a social like pillar of the community. And... There's this great idea that, you know, if you look after them, they will look after you. So if you make a good stadium like we had at the bowling ground, the fans will come, support every week, even if the team are not doing well, and they'll love you. And if you show you love them, maybe not to the extent that they love you, you know, it, it, it pays in the long run. I mean, if you look at Arsenal at the moment, the club you support is that, They've made this effort now to show the supporters they care, especially after the whole Super League thing and all that. And Mikel Arteta does this great push of making sure that the fans are part of the experience as well as the team are. And I think that really pays dividends. And I think that's what West Ham stands for. It's a club who are a family, really. And they're a family who look after each other and support each other through thick and thin. I think I think that's a brilliant interpretation because I definitely... You know, you 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 brought Arsenal into the conversation, so I'm sitting sitting well and truly up now. I think it's something that I <laughs> I certainly agree with. I think it's something I certainly mm. agree with. You know, having gone through the 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 dire days of an Emery, where you didn't have that connection to the club, you had a lot mm. of the players felt like mercenaries, um, and and there wasn't a lot of connection. But you know, having now Mikel Arteta, a player who was at the club as a player who understands the club, you do feel yeah. that connection a bit more. And 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 having just signed a West Ham player, sorry about it, with Declan Rice, you it's it's nice to it's nice to have a player come to the club who just who gets it, who gets that connection between the club and the fans, mm. having experienced it yeah. at West Ham and he's taking exactly the same way back uh, across to mm. our club. I totally agree. Do you know what? There's a lot of West Ham fans out there who will probably dislike me for saying this, but I 100% agree. I think Declan really got, understood what it was to be a West Ham fan and really understood what it was to be a part of West Ham. And I think, obviously, a lot of that helps be being the understudy to Mark Noble for many years, who is born, bred and, you know, lives West Ham in a lot of ways, especially now as our sporting director. But 
I think, yeah, I think that's something that all these clubs who have been successful and really stand for areas encapsulate. I mean, if you look at Manchester United with the class of 92, they got it, you know, they really got it. And Ferguson, Alex Ferguson really instilled it into his players that, you know, this club isn't just for you, it's for them. And I think that's what Declan Rice kind of personifies now. If you're at Arsenal, it's not for Arsenal, it's for the Arsenal supporters. Yeah, and I I think that's a, a beautiful you know couple of case uh, case study there from history of the class of '92. Mm. But we are we are digressing a little bit, but it it gives us a good yeah. segue into my next question, which was you know how has West Ham as a club and its community kind mm. of developed since the '80s, and and, and why is why is why is West Ham in particular a useful case study in in studying a club and its community? We've got to look at it this way: is that since the nineteen eighties, East London and West Ham kind of personify what's happened in this country in a social sense. It's this great idea that football is a mirror to society. You know what happens in football happens in society, and vice versa. So if you look at West Ham and East London since the eighties, you've got this community that's been decimated in the post-industrial world and now it's being rebuilt in this regentrified idea of commerce through Canary Wharf and the news outlets are all moving over there and yet you've got this plucky little football club who's always looked as the poor neighbour to the likes of Arsenal, Tottenham and Chelsea and that it's now kind of playing catch up with them and becoming a football business like all football clubs have become they're not football clubs anymore in the sense of a club they're businesses you know they look at the bottom line of how much money are they going to get in who can we sign to make our teams better how much money can we spend to better ourselves and i think west ham have really been caught up in that in a lot of ways i think if you look at the 90s under harry redknapp he signed more i think it was 134 players in seven years to try and better the football club and he spent 100 and something million. I think it might have been 134 million, which is ironic, kind of thinking how many players he signed. Million a player, really. And then you look at this idea of since, the, since really, since um, the current ownership are in charge with uh, David Gold, God rest his soul, uh, Karen Brady, and David Sullivan, that very much this is pushed to being a complete and utter commercial business you know how can west ham the brand get out to the world and that's why you've got london written on the bottom of the badge and it's just this idea that while east london's been pushing towards this huge commercial push west ham united is also doing this big commercial push and it definitely alienates some people just as it's alienated east londoners you know who have grown up in the area and now don't recognize the area they come from anymore I think that's why West Ham is useful because East London is kind of the petri dish of what's happening across the country and has been happening across the country since the 1980s. I think that's that's some really nice points there about, I particularly like the point about football mm. being a mirror uh, to, to British society. Yeah. You know, we've just on this podcast, we've had, mm. we've had Chris Burkett just come in and, and, and discuss with us about how baseball is a mirror to American society. And it's interesting to see similar parallels playing out here in the UK. But also within yeah. this development and push, uh, and we were discussing this just before we came on, um, the yeah. role of the women's game. Can you just give us a brief yeah. kind of outlook on how the women's game has developed in England, but then kind of detail 
how that's worked with West Ham. Well, if we're looking at the history of women's football, uh, women's football mm. probably has its height, its first initial height at the in the beginning of the 20th century. You know, it's slowly growing in the backdrop of the late 19th, early 20th century. There's a great game, I believe, at Crouch End in 1890-something. And I think it might be 1895. And... I think there's almost 100,000 people who attend that. And it goes through this huge push through until the First World War when all the men go to war. And naturally, who's left at home on the home front? The women who take on the mantle of playing football. And you get the likes of Dick Kerr ladies who become this huge, unstoppable football team. And I think just after the war, where women are now raising money to make sure there's funds there for heroes who are coming back from the war, it irritates men. It irritates the men, you know. How dare these women come along and do it better than us, almost. It upsets the FA, who very much are middle-class aristocratic men and do not like the fact that the women are almost stepping on their toes. So that's where the 1921 ban comes into place because women are not just, you know, trying to raise money for the for the troops who have come back from the war, but they're also raising money for anti-establishment funds, which is somewhat dis- hasn't been proven but it would add to this idea and add to the, you know, the cause for exclusion from the game for 1921. And then this ban carries on till 1971, which is where this modern women's football begins. And this has been growing for the last 50 years through a very slow progression in the 70s and 80s through to the inception of the league in 1991 which then gets built upon and then the professionalisation of the game truly begins from 2012 with the introduction of the WSL and has gone fully professional in 2018. So really now you're at this idea of women's football being very, it's pivotal moment now with the introduction of the new co as shown in the Carney review earlier this summer. And you've got this really big push now for women's football and that, you know, investors are looking at it as, you can invest in it at a fraction of the men's game and you could be at the forefront of something that could be socially a huge, huge tool for betterment. So within, you know, within this with very detailed history of the women's game that you just mentioned there, mm. you've mentioned mm. a couple of points that I find really interesting. I want to kind of expand upon even mm. more, sure. really, is there seems to be a theme of exclusion inclusion and and marginalization within this history of women's football and i know women's Mm. football is at this this moment where they start we're starting to gain the ascendancy over the americas but how has west ham itself played a role in this exclusion and marginalization before the first world war and during the 1921 ban there isn't much of an affiliation between women's football and west ham I mean, people like Steve Bolton are doing great work with the Dagenham Invincies, where they're looking at East London football. And there is a history of women's football in East London, but West Ham have no real link to it. It kind of appears the first time there's any West Ham's team is in the 1970s under John Greenacre. And that disappears in the mid-80s and then reignites again in what is its modern form as the West Ham women in 1992. So very much West Ham women have kind of started the exclusion really 
when women's football is actually pushing for progression and it's bizarre. So in 2015, you have the um, the Hunts, who were the chairman at the time, uh, coming under fire from the women's team and being accused, you know, and the club, the men's club, for that matter, of, you know, making sure there wasn't enough investment in them. They were training by the side of a road and there was this real thing. And the club captain and five other players walked out because of this. And the club were accused of not caring and... It is part of the absorption of the women's team into the main club, which is led to believe in 2016. But very much this exclusion carries on, even up until last year, where, you know, Alex Scott, I don't know if many people remember this, is after England won the Euros, she said, you know, all those years ago in 2018 when we were pushing for this, people didn't want to have us at our grounds. And West Ham United were one of these clubs that didn't want to have the women's football at its grounds. You've got the 60,000-seat stadium in London, and yet you're not having the women's Euros. It's a huge tournament. Why would you turn that down? And it just I think that's, that's what I can't fathom as a football supporter more than anything. And, you know, you've got this great stadium in East London that, you know, is, has this huge history as being the Olympic Stadium, and yet you don't have women's football there? What? Just it, the mind boggles. It definitely, as you said, with football being a mirror for British society, it's it's very interesting to see how a big institution during a moment of social upheaval and social inclusion has has taken the steps to not include until the point where they've had to. And it's very interesting to see that playing out at an institution such as West Ham. But that brings us on to another member, another another group which is a member of the the West Ham community, which yeah. have experienced different kind of treatment. Now, how has mm. West Ham worked to include or exclude members of its LGBTQIA plus uh, community? Well, West Ham United are actually very good on this. We've got Pride of Irons, who are our official supporters group, who deal with the LGBTQIA plus community. And there's always a lot of inclusion. The club are very much at the forefront of football first homophobia. They'll always be very much at the forefront. And they have been, I think they've been given the gold medal for inclusivity in the, in footballing terms. I don't know how this works. I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, but the club have, have made sure they're a very inclusive club and a very inclusive institution going forward. But the majority of the club's output is through Pride of Vines. And they do very good work. And to be fair for West Ham, they have in the past, like all football clubs, been ignorant of the community. But now the community is, you know, as you said, we're in this moment of social upheaval with a lot of these a lot of these issues. And, you know, these issues are becoming more aware and we're becoming more understanding of these um, issues for communities that maybe me or you don't have the lived experience of. But, you know, West Ham are trying to do their best, I think, in that respect. And you can't fault them for that. It, it's interesting to see it's how a club within mm. a, a field which has traditionally not been mm. very inclusive and not been particularly accepting mm. is working to try yeah. and demonstrate that it is accepting and it is include, inclusive. But you mentioned within a few of your answers there a, a landmark moment. Mm in West Ham's history, mm. where they moved from the Berlin Grant to 
the the Olympic Stadium, which is now I think the Queen Elizabeth yeah. Second Stadium. You know, how has the, London the way that West or the London Stadium, even how has the way that West Ham has historically interacted with its local community, the businesses in that community, changed yeah. with this this moment in its history? I'm glad you asked me this because I did a talk on this at UCR last year and I mentioned this. Uh, after the club left the bowling ground in 2016, there was a lot of businesses in the area who relied on the match day income, obviously. And all par two of them have shut down in seven years. So if you count your fingers how many businesses I'm about to mention, the two that are still standing are the bowling pub, which shut, itself shut down before the before COVID and now is reopened with new uh, tent, uh, landlords. And Urcans, which is a fish and chip restaurant on the Barking Road, you've lost a pie and mash restaurant, you've lost the sweet stalls outside, you've lost, uh, this is one for the West Ham fans, the Rip Man, who essentially sells very great ribs with very hot sauces, if that's your kind of thing. And... You've lost stalls, you've lost calves, and all you must have lost a dozen businesses, really, in the space of seven years. And yet, you've got these two businesses who, fair play to them, are still clucking along, are still trying to do it, but they haven't got the income that football used to bring in. And yet, there's no, there was no support from the club, who at the time said, of course, we'll support you, we'll bring you along, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll make sure permits are in place. Nothing. And I think if we go back to my earlier answer about this commercial business, I think that's where West Ham have gone wrong in recent years. And this whole idea that I've been talking about, about West Ham being a family, you know, we've got to this point as a family now where we're maybe not looking after certain members of that family but as well as we should do. And I think that I think that's the problem now with these businesses. You know, we're intric- we're intricately linked the community all football clubs are and the fact that we're kind of almost turning our back on the community that supported us for over 100 years that's wrong morally ethically whether you look at it it's wrong and it's it's interesting to see how there's a there's an ignorance of history within that there's a there's a a changing there's a moment in history that's happening at that Mm. as well and it's interesting to see that that play out now you're you're also Mm. part and and so am i actually I don't know why I'm saying yeah. isolating you. We're also part of a <laughs> an organisation, a society, where mm. quite a few of us are doing very similar work, looking up these moments uh, and discussing them. Mm. And, and that society is the British Society of Sports Historians. Could you tell mm. us, uh, tell listeners about this society and what we do at the BSSH? Well, the BSSH have been going since the 80s. And we are what we say on the tin, which is sports historians. But we're not just solely sports historians. We deal in sports management, sports leisure. We are we deal with all facets of sport. And we are very much in the British side of sports historians looking at the future. And we realise that we live in a multicultural society. And we realise that, you know, not all, every historian, as you said earlier, has his own story. It comes from our personal backgrounds. And naturally, we're trying to make sure that we champion the right issues and we make sure that we're trying to bring on sport and show people how good sport it can be to as a betterment and a betterment tool in this country. And it really is a great, great organisation, society to be part of uh, and to see the it different is. work the 
the other members are doing. You're also the membership secretary as well. Is there any upcoming projects for the BSSH that you want to you want to mention? You want people to to know about? Yes, I do actually. Uh, next summer at the University of Chichester, who I'm affiliated with, and I'm planning this conference, is our annual conference we host every August or September. And details will be published around February, March time of next year. So if you are interested in coming, please sign up to the BSSH. Uh, I'll help you, obviously, being membership secretary. And we look forward to seeing you in Chichester next summer, where me and Jackson will both be. I mean, I'm really looking forward to going back to Chichester uh, and being involved with the BSSH at this conference, it's going to be a it's going to be a great weekend. Yeah, I'm looking forward to bringing um, BSSH down to Chichester for the first time. Now, obviously, uh, Max, people are going to want to interact with you online, interact with your work. Where yeah. can they go? If you want, mostly you'll find me on X, which is formerly Twitter at WHU Historian, and in there you can find the links to my LinkedIn, my own personal website, The Hammett Historian, where recently I published a blog series for Black History Month, as well as my Threads account and all other social media accounts. And I thoroughly recommend going and checking out Max's social media and his blog because it's a really great piece of content. I know you're going to love reading it, regardless if you're a West Ham supporter or not. I mean, I'm not one, and I love reading it. So thank you very much for coming on, Max. I really appreciate it. So thank you very much for listening to this episode with Max Portman, where he has discussed his research into West Ham United and its historic links and interactions with its communities. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that we create here at History Jackson, please do consider heading to the Buy Me Coffee profile in the description below or heading to History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Now, next week, we have another great episode lined up, and that is our Christmas special episode. So I know you don't want to miss that. Now, I will talk to you all next week.